Grand rising, everybody. This is Reverend Jody Susan Calhoun, uh, and the show is Self Cell Care. And today we're inviting you to uh, join us with Dr. Kevin Mays, and um, we're talking about developing conscious leaders. And there's never been, I think, a more important time to uh, guide people in becoming the best versions of themselves. And um, so I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Kevin Mays. Um, he's an award-winning speaker, author, trainer. Um, and I'm just actually, I'm going to let him demonstrate to you who he is. We met um, in Chicago uh, training uh, under NLP, and NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. And um, it's really about being self-aware, right? What are our belief systems? Why do we believe these things? Um, how are we programmed? How can we unprogram those belief systems and do things differently so we can become the best version of ourselves? A couple of things, you know, so Dr. Kevin Mays uh, does a lot of training and I I printed out <laughs> his, um, his, his, uh, his bio, um, but, I was really excited about some of um, what some past attendees were saying. Um, the most important thing to me, I thought, was, well, a couple. So Kevin's outstanding training seminars have had a powerful impact in creating a culture of performance in our organization. He gets rave reviews every time. That was from Jackie Harris, president and CEO of Inter. Uh, Integrace. And then from uh, Unity Endowment in Washington, D.C., powerful, transformative, life-changing. Dr. May's penetrate, penetrating insight changed the way I understand myself, my leadership, and my business. He is truly a masterful speaker. So, she, so Michelle Madsen, CEO of Unity Endowment, says, changed the way I understand myself, my leadership, and my business. And so as we get started here today, I want you to think about when Dr. Kevin is speaking. How can you understand yourself differently? How will that impact how you impact the world? Because I know you're all here to affect change and to bring, you know, make the world a better place. Cause those are the people we attract here. So let's do it. Let's bring in Dr. Kevin Mays. Grand rising. Good morning. Great to see you today. Great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you here and so glad that we met and my husband sat next to you, right. In NLP training in Rosemont. So um, so today, um, we're talking about, uh, you know, developing conscious leaders, which is such, it, it's the heartbeat for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know it is for you. 
would you mind sharing what made you a self-awareness junkie? What, what catapulted you there? That's a big question. Where did it all begin? Right. And, um, I think as I think back in my life, I remember <clears throat> the journey trying to figure out my life when you're a kid, right? Your, your belief is my belief was, you know, going to college, I had to be, uh, have it all figured out. And I remember I studied engineering. I'm from Michigan and my dad worked for GM for 34 years. If you want any job worth its salt, you'll work for the car companies. Everything else is a Mickey Mouse car company. Uh, excuse me. Everything else is a Mickey Mouse company, right? So that was kind of ingrained in my head. So being the dutiful son, I went to school and studied engineering. But it's interesting the dissonance I experienced in that because while I was doing what I should, there was also this under uh, undercurrent of, of wildness in me. And it was amazing to try to fit those two together. So I was studying not only uh, engineering as I should, but it was aeronautical engineering, which allowed me to fly airplanes because I had a, a relentless need to travel, a pursuit of travel. So I thought, well, great, I'll, I'll join, uh, I'll be a pilot and I'll fly around the world, I can travel. And the constraints of doing what I should, should over time really played themselves out. At one point, I remember uh, I'm 18 years old, I'm behind the wheel of a Cessna and in flight training, when you're flying a Cessna, your job is to practice flying straight and level, <laughs> to practice tracking your shadow along a street on the ground. So you're, you're compensating for the wind. So they call it crabbing. You'll fly a certain way. And it's uh -huh. really for me, after you've done it a little bit, it was ultimately boring. So I would get that plane into all kinds of inverted positions it was never designed to be in. Right. I would... I would be in stalls, I would be in uh, spins, I would have the airplane falling out of the sky and then recover it and do it again. And in order to do a spin, you'll pull back on the wheel of the airplane until the airplane slows right down and you'll hear, you'll hear the stall horn go off. And then I would kick the rudder and roll the airplane upside down. And I remember watching this lake, I'm spiraling towards this lake above the trees and Cessnas are innately stable. So if you take your hand off the wheel, the airplane will self-correct. Well, I overcorrected. This is the third time I had done it, third or fourth time in that training session. I'm flying solo up there. And so I overcorrect. I come out of the airplane, uh, out of the spin, but I'm upside down and I have to cycle all the way back through. And I remember pulling the wheel back as hard as I could as I'm diving towards the trees, trying to lift the nose and the blood is rushing out of my head. I'm starting to gray out, as they call it. And this, the horn is going off, the warning horn on the airplane. And the wings are, you can feel them shaking. And I'm in the never exceed speed. And I'm just skating above the trees. And I had this blast in that moment, this aha moment. Kevin, this is not the career path for you. He's <laughs> yeah. on the truth. <laughs> As I watched my life kind of flash in front of my eyes, I thought, this is not it. And I landed that airplane and I bought a motorcycle, put a backpack on my back and I took off across the country. And I ended up that year. I went out to Maine and lived out in Maine for a while and just, I, with a tent, nothing more. A tent. I had a hundred bucks in my pocket. One, uh, I ended up going from Maine to California to Florida to everywhere in between and along the way, I really started to 
Well, I put myself into some situations then instead of being in an airplane upside down, I threw myself on the West Coast with no money, no contacts. My motorcycle broke down, didn't know anybody for 2000 miles. I'm like, All right, let's figure out what I'm really made of. Uh, if I don't do what I should in my head, right, following those beliefs of what I should, if I strip that away. And it was amazing to me when I remember being on the California coast and I drove out there. Like I say, I was now 19 years old. Ran completely out of money, didn't know anybody, motorcycle broke down. And I remember this epiphany in that moment. I thought, wow, at this moment, now finally, it's all up to me. Whatever happens is up to me. And it tuned me into kind of a projection in my mind that had been happening. And it really was a huge pivot point. The first, the first step on my path to to really that, that self-awareness journey you asked about. So sorry, a long story getting here. No, but this there, is great. This is great. great. <laughs> a series of a lot of events that all led up to me diving into and being a self-awareness junkie and to really trying to understand the beliefs that constrain me, the beliefs that help me, and just to understand what that cognitive lens is I've developed, be able to pull it off, polish it, change the beliefs to move with greater intention. So it all started, uh, and I'm sure the seeds were planted before then. Yeah, the the seeds were planted before then, but that was a major pivot point in my life. Is there any chance that you might have two windows open um, for this show? Because I hear a reverberation, I'm wondering, when, when I speak. Okay, it's gone now. Whatever it was. So awesome. So um, so I was listening to you. Mm -hmm. And what occurred to me as you're in that plane is that you're really getting out of the box, so to speak. You're pushing the limits. You're pushing the envelope. You're mm-hmm. moving past the belief systems that are that shape our paradigm, our current paradigm. So you don't belong in a plane, right? You belong mm-hmm. in front of people, and you knew that your 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 higher self knew that, mm-hmm. and you. Did was I mean not only of course what was best for you but best for humanity because oh, right, right, you're here right. to teach people how to push the envelope for their current paradigm. You know it's interesting because it's been a reoccurring theme: the dissonance between falling into a role, being the good, responsible man, doing what I should, and letting my wildness run my true potential in the universe and breaking out of that mold in the same way I was, you know, nearly crashing the airplane or being stranded on the West coast. Like those moments in those moments, I feel like my soul is able to soar and I'm able to connect with something larger. Um, But then what happens? Let me kind of get into the day to day. I get into the day to day and I sometimes feel like a horse with blinders on, right? I'm just, moving this direction over and over and over and don't even see what's right in front of me until I allow myself to step into some radical moment and strip away the blinders, strip away the veneer and really be vulnerable in the, in those moments that 
it's, it's those moments that allow me, I think, to reconnect and to find purpose and meaning and to actually live the life I was meant to live. You know, we all yeah, have and live on purpose, gift. live with intention, right? Yeah, we have a hundred year gift here on planet Earth. And I consistently have to ask myself, what okay, it's all gonna be over. What am I meant to do and experience and live? And what is my my higher self calling me to do? Especially when I get in the trap of fatherhood, parenthood, being a householder, all of the things, being a member of society, the, the with the roles and the rules and how do you fit into that in a way yeah, that yeah i think it's a struggle for most of us to and i know that's been my uh struggle all my life <laughs> is finding the balance well first was finding the balance within me and finding mm -hmm. inner peace within me and then which that's always a constant <laughs> mm -hmm. like it's never really done by the way spoiler mm -hmm. um and then you don't just arrive. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you arrive when you pass. <laughs> but, Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Or you get to come back down to earth school. Yeah. Um, which if by the way, if you could put your your information for me in the private chat, I will also run your information, like how people can get in touch with you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll if you put in the private chat, I'll put it as a um uh as a ticker across the, the screen so um you know similar to what I'm, i'll show you like so this is what i'll do for you <laughs> so um but finding the balance of work right um i was never a mom but i was a mom to other people's children and but I didn't actually give birth. That whole thing scared me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and now Rightly I know why. So if you, there's a gentleman. He lives in Michigan. His name is Tom Whitmire. And he was on my podcast maybe about a month or so ago, just before I met you, actually. Mm. And um, he talked about what's really happening in the delivery room which actually dovetails into what we're talking about today, because that's where it all starts in terms of how we get sucked into a belief system that's not really ours to begin with. And um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. So if you're, if you're really interested in understanding why you are where you are today, <laughs> I'd watch, um, uh, the, I think it's like the truth about pregnancies or something. Um, but so by the way, oh, in a new tab, I, end, <laughs> I guess I need to ed edit that. Hold on. <laughs> Let me just do this. There you go. So if you guys are, uh, as excited to, uh, connect with Dr. Kevin Mays, um, as I am, you know, this is how you get in touch with him. So, um, so, oh, and we can put in the phone number, it looks like too. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, I think that if we can find, and this is not, by the way, I just, before I say this, I want to tell you that once you find it, you're refinding it every day. <laughs> 
which is the balance, because we have to, I think, choose, uh, we have to prioritize, right? What we need to do each day and each day looks uniquely different. Um, but what I would love for you to speak about is how do people create conscious leaders in the workplace? What does that really look like? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I want to just throw out some pain points that I see, okay? Um, some pain points that I see are um, people are checked out. They are afraid to make a decision without the approval of a superior or supervisor. And as a result, their clients or their customers suffer. Have you seen that? And really how well, many absolutely, times? absolutely. So in my mind, I love it. You described the symptoms of something larger, right? It's a cultural issue. People are checked out or they're afraid to make decisions and there's something going on in the culture of that organization that that perpetuates that. So and so often though, as leaders, what we want to do is see the individual who's checked out and think that they're the issue. They're not. Without recognizing that the symptom of another issue. And that's what I love. For me, conscious leadership starts with the premise that before you can lead others, you have to lead yourself. Yes. And so it's all about developing presence, awareness, intention, and vision in individuals, starting with the individuals around the leadership table, helping them interrupt those patterns, helping them overcome the beliefs that are driving driving behaviors, the autopilot behaviors, those beliefs yeah. that allow them to be right consistently, especially when there's a group of individuals who are who are executives for a, an organization. They're good at thinking cognitively and being right. And then there's a group think that happens and they don't see the huge blind spot and they don't see the bias in their thinking. And then they can easily perpetuate a culture where others feel disenfranchised. They feel like they're not valued. They're not heard. They're not listened to. And engagement goes down. And the leaders think the individual who's disengaged, again, as we said earlier, is the issue. And the reality is the work of conscious leadership is to learn how to turn your uh, your attention from the external world inward. You know, we spend our whole lives educating ourselves. It feels like, you know, we go to all of our school and our college is learning to master the world around us and not to master the world within us. And for me, leadership is the most spiritual discipline there is because it's about gaining self mastery first self-mastery so you can lead your thinking your feeling and your behaving with intention you can have a result with intention and then you can use yourself as a vehicle to help others be better that for me that's the work that's the work i love when you see individuals start to recognize that you can't change others but when you change yourself the way others experience you uh, experience you begins to change and that begins to change them Right. It's a trickle down effect. Yeah. Yes. And I've seen it so many times where individuals get frustrated at what the other person isn't doing. 
And so then what happens? That frustration becomes in charge. I, I think of it as the caveman part of them. The caveman brain takes over and they start to go into this mode where they get short, condescending. They get uh, they raise their voice or they just shut down. They play Don't the you love it like voice. when they raise their voice and speak slowly, like you're mm -hmm. like a caveman? Like, like I can't, or you speak another language and that's going to make a big difference. Yes. Not working. Yes, yes, yes. So um, I, it's so energy, right? Yeah. And it starts with us. If we show up differently, huh? The other responds differently. So more important in my mind than trying to get others to do something. It's about us having that self mastery and then recognizing our role in the dynamic that plays out and having mastery in creating that healthy dynamic then it invites people to put down their constraints, to put down their beliefs, to put down their resistance and to align at a higher level, to build that kind of rapport that brings out the best in people. That is a game changer. That's how the best industries, uh, the best uh, organizations in their industries do it. I love watching it. Companies. Yeah. Evolve. I mean, so yeah. when you develop these relationships rooted in trust, that rapport that you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Where you start to understand how someone else thinks, right? And yeah. that gives you the psychological safety to make that decision because you're like, I understand, I understand my boss, Dr. Kevin Mays. I know what he thinks. I know, we've talked about these kinds of things before. He's going to support this. And if you have to tweak it, right, then you tweak mm -hmm. it and you know you're not getting fired. It's just a lesson. And we can take out the element of fear because most people are running fear-based, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do, how do you teach someone to start from heart? Because that's a big, I think that's a big part of it, like leading from your heart versus your head. Well, is I don't think it's awareness piece. Is it that self-awareness? Absolutely. Yeah, for me, it's not one or the other, mm -hmm. but recognizing that we have multiple points of wisdom we can access. And a lot of folks are super good. At, they've been trained their whole life to be hypercognitive. It doesn't mean they don't have stuff that's going on in the rest of their body. They're just unaware of it. So the work is, in my mind, learning how to control your attention and to move it inward beyond just the narrative in your head, but then to be able to experience yourself. And I, you know, I grew up in the world where if you wanted something, if you're going to cry, you'd be given something to cry about, right? <laughs> uh, big oh, voice. my. I forgot about that because we're about, I think, I don't know if you're my, I'm 60. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. A if little you're shy of that. Sure. Okay. So, and um yeah, I remember that phrase. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, it's the masculine paradigm, right? And our, our fathers wanted us to be strong and bold and, you know, be, be tough. And, and that's great. But in doing so, we learn to become unaware. And it's really a learned behavior to become unaware of certain parts of ourselves. So I never even knew it was possible. You know, people talk about emotional awareness. What is, what is that? Emotion is such a nebulous thing to me. But what I realized, I you can be aware of is the actual physiological sensations in your body. You can open up. Your mind is always aware of what's going on physiologically. And when you start to tune into that, 
a doorway opened in me that I never knew was possible, that I started to enter into this realm of a deeper awareness of my unconscious mind where my emotions lie. And it's not this, it's not this nebulous thing. It's a very concrete thing. You can actually experience it in the moment. And then from that point to notice how in those moments when the emotion is, is swelling or powerful, the emotion starts to make the decision, not the higher self and not the behavior, not the, the pattern in my thinking. So it's just understanding what thinking, part of me is in charge. Yeah, there's thinking, there's feeling, and there's not one that's better. I've seen people make heartfelt decisions that are horrible decisions for them and for everybody involved. It's there's just an ingrained pattern of behavior that uh, and thinking and feeling that all get mushed together. It's like, how do you pull yourself out of that and make decisions that are truly aligned? Well, it's a great question. How do you teach people to do that? <clears throat> well, it starts with awareness. Yeah. Right. That's the first step. And, you know, it's interesting as we think about I've talked to too many people who would do things if they didn't have fear. You know, like they say, mm -hmm. what fear public speaking is the biggest thing. They don't do it because of the fear. And from my vantage point, it's not about not having the emotion. It's about allowing yourself to do it regardless of how it feels. Yeah. That's a skill set. That's a huge skill set. Mm -hmm. And so what I teach people, um, and, and, and this might be foreign to some, is learning how to be the observer so that you can take, you can still have your feelings, but you take out what I would call the triggered emotion, right? And how I was able to learn this is I had done a past life regression. And, um, oh, I guess I'll just let the cat out of the bag. So I believe in past lives, right? Okay. <laughs> and it had come to me that in my past, I was Joan of Arc. A part of me, not the whole part, whole of me, but part of me, part of my soul was Joan of Arc. And so I had this consciousness of really like a being uh, burned at the stake. And so when they put me under... I could see myself as a, an observer, so I'm not feeling the pain, of being burned at the stake. Mm. And then I looked at the people who were burning me. They had the fear and they were in more pain than Joan who was being burned at the stake because they were so fearful because they knew that they were doing something that was out of alignment with like God and higher self and all of that. And, and I could throw grace on that, that they're actually suffering more than me. Cause once my body's gone, I'm just my spiritual being. And so I took that experience of the past life regression and being the observer and started teaching people will step out of the situation look at it as an observer. And now what do you think? Right? Is that person really intentionally doing this? Are they on autopilot? You know, what can we do to bring some consciousness and awareness? And you don't have to be mad at them. So it takes out that anger and trigger element, because we don't have to be mad. 
because it's just a learned behavior that needs to be unlearned. And then, and then you don't take things personally. I think when I, I was speaking to you, I'm not sure if I sh shared that with you in, in Chicago or Rosemont, Illinois, was my, you've, I'm sure you've read the book, The Four Agreements, mm -hmm. right? Or with Don Miguel Ruiz. Mm -hmm. And the second agreement is don't take things personally. And I sucked at that, like really did. And I still do to a degree. <laughs> Everybody does. We take the world personally because we are incarnated in our human form and it becomes a very personal world. We're attached to our ideas and our perspective and our self-concept and our worldview. And that is such a profound agreement to not take the world personally. And it's so much bigger and deeper than, than you would think at first blush. It is oh, the core yeah. to all of it. And uh, being able to achieve that uh, objective observer space to watch yourself objectively, it's almost like to extricate yourself from yourself, to, to watch yourself like you're watching a movie is so profound. Not to be disassociated necessarily, but to, you can still care, but to be detached in a way that allows you to see things more clearly as they are. We take well, it's removing the trigger, right, Dr. Kevin? Mm -hmm. It's really just removing the trigger. You care. You're just not triggered. So you don't go into autopilot mm -hmm. and, and say something that you may regret. And I like something you said earlier, you don't have to be angry or frustrated and anger and frustration usually harm one person the most. And that is the person who's carrying it. So I can, you know, I love it. I can be angry about something somebody did 10 years ago and I'm carrying a grudge. And how much of my energy, my life force is going into carrying this grudge for 10 years and they don't even know about it. They're gone. They have nothing to do with it. I'm the one who's miserable. So I love it. The first step is like, how do we, how do we undo our own misery? How do we step out of our own suffering and our own pain and learn to just live in alignment with a deeper purpose? So I'm so with you on that. So there was a man, um, and it's on my YouTube videos, um, and he was on his deathbed. And um, he was in a wheelchair, and he was on oxygen, and they uh, put him into hospice. And, um, you know, he's on video. So it's Michael Murphy Burke. I can use his name. And he was rolled into the church. And um, it was on my birthday um, a year ago. So a year and two weeks ago. And I was told by spirit to um, remove my birthday from social media, like so that no attention would be given to me and that we would divert all the attention onto him. And he was rolled into the church and I didn't know what I would be getting because I'm told at that point in time what I'm doing, but I followed what I was told to do. And we led probably about a thousand different healers from around the world. Some piped in on Zoom, some just came in energetically, some came into the church and what was, what I was called to lead on was forgiveness mm. and forgiving 
ourselves first. Just what you were saying. Because forgiveness will show up as a cancer or heart failure. I mean, excuse me, lack of forgiveness, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Will show up as cancer, uh, heart failure. I think... Um, you know, depending on your DNA, will decide how that meant, how that will actually show up. But when we can, at a soul level, really forgive ourselves for our own indiscretions and understand, really, there was really nothing even to forgive to begin with, that we're just learning, we're lessons, it's earth school. And, you know, and then, you know, we learned, right, Dr. Kevin, about Honopono, right? It, was that the first time you had learned Honopono, by the way? Or yeah. It was. So I learned Honopono uh, a couple, well, many years ago um, through some mentors of mine, right? And you want to explain it or Honopono? No, go ahead. You're, I, okay. I'd love to hear your take. <laughs> well, I mean, base, base, I mean it's a Hawaiian uh, chant, uh, love song, right? Um, and I never really always remember, quite frankly, the exact words, but you can look it up on YouTube and listen to it. Um, and you also could, I'm sure Dr. Uh, Dr. Matt um, from NLP.com Empowerment Incorporated probably has a video, but it's about asking for forgiveness from, from not only, you know, the person that you may or may not have harmed, um, but forgiving yourself and, and sending, you know, giving out love, right, to, to them and to the universe, right? I'm sorry, if, please forgive me, I love you. And, um, and, it, and just that energy, even I, when I just said that, I felt this uh, tingling sensation over my body. And look, your last mishap we'll call it or hiccup doesn't define you does it dr kevin yeah that's right i mean and that's really what it's about in my opinion that we can make we can have mishaps we can have hiccups and i won't use the word mistake because it's not it's a lesson and it doesn't define us and we can move forward when we believe it defines us we don't move forward thank you so would you share some experiences that you've had where you've had some great successes? And then we looks like we um, have some questions or maybe can't. Well, actually, we have a question from Charles uh, sure. from San Diego. It says, how does someone's EQ play into their role as a leader in organizational development? Great question, Charles. Go ahead. I'll let you answer that, doctor. Well, I love it. So the EQ, I think about somebody's um, emotional intelligence and how that was such a, a rallying cry for quite a while. And now we recognize there's so many different forms of intelligence. It's not just emotional. There's so many different ways and complexities to how we show up in the world. Now, that being said, I've seen, I use the EQ. I see folks who the score they get, if it's low, it suggests they just don't have as much self-awareness in how they move through the world. So 
I think it absolutely does play out. I don't know through the lens of the assessment. I mean, I'm continually, I, again, I use it. I'm continually uh, leaning into it to really see what the correlation is. But I'll say this, the more awareness you have, my experience is the greater the likelihood you're going to behave with intention. And that awareness is really like shining a flashlight into our, into our blind spot into our unconscious mind. And there's a host of patterns and ghosts back there. And we're not trying to necessarily get rid of all of it, but if you can stand in the fire without, without letting it own you, if you can see what your patterns are, your self-limiting beliefs that you carry, once you have awareness of those, you're in a position of choice in not letting it dictate and drive your behavior. So for me, that's the real work. I love that EQ. The role it plays is, yeah, the more awareness, the greater the likelihood of choice. Awareness with awareness comes a duty, a duty to be more intentional, more purposeful and aligned. And uh, that's the beautiful thing for me. It's all about alignment, because without alignment, we're just going to keep playing the same pattern we've always played out and have an airtight logic that says this is the right thing to do. We're going to know that we're right. I'm good at knowing I'm right. Ask my wife. I can tell her all the time how right i am it gets me nowhere it's not aligned with my purpose and my relationship with her when i talk also, about i mean i'm so glad you brought this up because i think it's so key yeah you are right in some respect but if your wife is not receiving it in the way that you're intending the bottom line is if you want relationship with your wife you have to pivot and, that, and then copy paste that concept to anybody else. Go to work. If, you're, if your you know, peer is not receiving the information as you intend, you can't say, well, I didn't mean it that way. I tried to do it this way. It kind of doesn't matter. What matters is what the perception is. And so if, and, and you know, um, I'm, are you trained in DISC? DISC? Yeah. yeah, me. Okay. So I studied DISC for, I don't know, probably six or seven years. And so um, we have, so for those who don't know what DISC is, uh, do you want to explain DISC? Go ahead. I mean, the DISC. Well, yeah. Uh there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's all, there's many, many tools that have four basic quadrants to understand how we play out these key archetypal properties. You can be a driver, which means uh, your natural tendency is to move forward into things versus an influencer, somebody who naturally builds relationships and moves through the world that way. There are steady folks and there are, uh, what is the C? Uh, uh, I always, I always intermix the words with words that aren't the official discourse. The is conscientious. Yeah, the detail-oriented folks, the consistent, mm -hmm. conscientious folks. I'm the other end of that spectrum, so that's mm -hmm. why I never remember it. <laughs> but it's really just a great way of understanding what is that patterning, how we move through the world. And you'll see, for example, uh, strong Ds are going, take no prisoners, go and make a decision, move it forward. And that can work beautifully for them. And it might work beautifully for others who think that way in their organization. But when you when you enact that pattern as a driver, if that's my natural uh, predisposition. That's the way I move through the world. If I do that with somebody who might be a strong C, who's more steady and more uh, more 
consistent, more methodical. Those are your accountants, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. I might blast them out of the water. They react to the, to the way they're perceiving me. They think I'm, I'm uh, steamrolling. I'm not listening to them. I don't care about them. They end up shutting down for safety, back to the psychological safety. They personalize my behavior as something about them. I see in my worldview, them withdrawing. And I think they're the problem. Right. So it's just another way of understanding these dynamics that we play. And, and the, the warning area, I've seen folks say, well, I'm just a D. That's just the way I am. No, no, no. Mm. no. With awareness comes a duty to be more intentional and more purposeful. And it goes back to what's to, what's the result you want? I, I take it back to vision. What's your vision? Who do you want to be? How do you want to show up? What impact do you want to have? Regardless of what your beliefs are and your drives are, you must align. You must step outside of those. This is why it's so important to take off the blinders, expand your comfort zone, and do things that may be really uncomfortable in pursuit of the result that's aligned with your vision. Right. And so I want to do a yes and to that, right? Mm -hmm. So when, like I'm a high D, but I'm also a high I and above the line S and above the line C. And the reason I'm above the line S and C is because I started my career in finance, <laughs> right? So, um, and actually, at a, I mean, really, if you want to go back to high school, I was filing checks uh, as a 14-year-old at a bank and balancing the checkbooks for our clients at 14 and 15. So what am I learning? Be very steady, be very conscientious. You know, make sure you're, you know, um, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I. And what the most important thing that Maureen Olker taught me, my very first boss, know when to draw a line in the sand or in the checkbook. Don't go searching for that penny. If it doesn't balance by a penny, strike a balance. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the most important lesson I've ever learned because it wasn't just about the checkbook, was it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen uh, strong C's who will get so caught, or I think in terms of Myers-Briggs as well, the strong sense. Yeah. You can get so driven down into the details and their decision-making doesn't happen because they just want more data and more data and more data. And the perception from others outside of that strong sensing community is that they have their head in the sand or they're, they're stalling in making decisions and overwhelming the system with data. At some point, enough is enough. How do you know when enough is enough and then make the decision to move forward? Yeah, analysis paralysis is I think what mm-hmm. <laughs> The hard thing is, though, again, we'll create an airtight logic that will support us in perpetuating that pattern. We'll know we're right. I just need more data. I can show you here. I just, once we get more data and they'll always have a logic. And this is the hard thing to be able to understand that lens of the logical lens that we create and realize, no, there is enough. And that's the hard. That's the uh, that's where the comfort zone ends. Right. When you step out of the comfort zone to make a decision, maybe not having all the data. Or for somebody who's a strong, intuitive, big picture, to be able to slow down and make sure they have all the information needed before just looking at one data point projecting three months into the future. Well, and so I am an intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. And a very strong intuitive. And the, the very first lesson I got early on was, yes, um, trust your intuitive skills. 
and balance that with some facts because yes, it may be a good idea, but what's the timing on that good idea? Is it a now or is it in a year from now? Mm-hmm. Or is it two years from now? Mm-hmm. And so we're not, I'm not suggesting at all not to trust your gut or your intuition. I am an intuitive. I mean, like people call me for this. And um, so, and you have to look at things that support that intuition. I work with a lot of doctors because I'm all, one of my gifts is as a medical intuitive. So I can't just say, you know, fill in the blank, this is what you have. I could say, this is what I hear you have. I want you to go to a doctor and get tested for that. Or I create a frequency or what have you. I create frequencies that heal, help the body heal itself. Um, So you need evidence of that. You can't just say it works, but you get your download or your intuition from God. And then you find the evidence that supports it. Like I would say, hey, I think this will help with inflammation. You either look it up, find a doctor or whatever. You know, we, oh, this is where this is taking this conversation. We work in community. And as much as we try to work on solo, solo is for self-awareness, in my opinion. And then you take that self-awareness and you work in community to help the entire community rise up in their consciousness. Well, I love it. In my terms, I think of it in, you know, my work is in terms of teams. Mm. So I think about working with executive teams that run organizations. The individuals around the table all have a different paradigm they show up at the table with in different ways that they will make decisions and understand the world around them. So that's the beautiful thing is to leverage the wisdom of the team through decision making. And it'll require, well, when teams don't do that intentionally, it starts to pull apart the fabric of the team. Then we'll start to have the the silos will happen. The internal friction will happen. You'll have dysfunctional teams. When you have individuals, as you said, who do the individuals do the work Mm -hmm. and then they show up together and they can then own their own bias own their own preferences and, and understand how their paradigm shows up, how they look at the world and it understands different from others. Then they can move methodically through a process that leverages everyone's wisdom and ends up and allows the team to end up in a place of real, uh, powerful, positive decision-making. Oh yeah. All day. Mm-hmm. You know, Charles here, Charles Key, he says, you mentioned blind spots when you are becoming self-aware. How does a leader discover their own blind spots? Thank you, Charles. Great question. Yeah, it is a good question. I know one of the things that, that I use is a 360 tool. So Love we, we the designed- 360 tool. Yeah. That, thing's ch- that thing saved my life when I was like 29 years old. Go ahead. No, I think it's fantastic to get a window into the world of others' perspectives. So when I work with executives, the first thing I do is a deep reflection through some some leadership models, but it's really models of self and personality to understand how they show up, to understand those core drives that they programmed into their into their mind in the first three years, five years, 10 years of their life, and to see how they're playing out today. 
right? I think of it as their success drivers. It's the frame, cognitive framework they've created. So understand that, understanding that from the inside out. And then I love to put a layer on top of that, a DISC or a Myers-Briggs or a Hogan assessment to see how the two align. Out of that, then, to be able to forecast, if this is your personality as you understand it from the inside out, and this is what the assessment says, what do you think others would, how do others see that thing we call your personality? And then we'll cast the 360 assessment, get 20 folks to fill it out, and it's eye-opening to see the alignment that'll happen there. But it really, and for some folks, it's it's interesting. I work with a lot of type A leaders who are really good at what they do, and they'll get really positive responses on their 360. I've got one right in front of me. There's reams of data. Uh, they get positive responses, but what do they do? They go right to the one little issue that somebody says, oh, you might do this differently, and they'll obsess on it because they're perfectionists. There's the pattern. Ah, the pattern of perfectionism is great unless it looks like an individual who doesn't delegate and wants everything done themselves and nothing's ever good enough. Then you create this environment that people feel um, less empowered. Yeah, right. So So the 360 is powerful. I used to work with a, a, a few people, I mean, just with my own company. And this is so minor, but I think it relates because I have a lot of you know people who are self-employed, small business owners, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> as well as large business owners. But <clears throat> but in a way, we're all small business owners where we're running an event because mm-hmm. we got our own little pod going on at that time. And I remember this is years ago. They wanted my approval of how we set up the table. I'm like, really? <laughs> Go do you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they wanted my approval. And I'm like, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like, I was kind of like stuck because I'm like, how, how, you know, it didn't even occur to me that you need approval on how you're setting up a table, like at a, at a trade show. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, how can you do it wrong? If there's something really bad, you can just kind of move it. But do you, do you, boo, right? <laughs> In charge, yes, yes, yes. And then, and so, well, okay. no, I love it. I, I would wonder with something like that, like what kind of patterns did that individual pick up? I, I love studying birth order and you'll watch traditionally, you know, the youngest children are good at being led and they will have more confidence with direction. And so now you put a person who grew up and they were the youngest and they were always told what to do. And that became the imprint and that became their cognitive narrative that plays out 30 years later, setting up a conference table, wanting to make sure they have your approval and your guidance. So in ways, those patterns getting in the way. Well, that's really cool. Uh, It's interesting. And I don't know a lot about, you know, how birth order, that's just not something I've ever really studied or looked at. But it, um, and I can see where you know, um, the oldest would want to lead all the time, but I was number four uh, out of five, and I was always, I mean, the phrase I think out of the womb was, I'll do it myself, <laughs> you know, and they're all like, okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was running solo from day one, so I want to show a screen because. You know, Charles is asking, you know, how does a leader discover their own blind spots? You've answered that, in, you know, with the 360. I want to share one other thing. And uh, I'm going to do the best I can to show it without 
like, uh, let's see if we can do this. So this is the DKDK zone. Mm -hmm. How you shift your mindset, you know, the small part of the pie. Can we see that on the screen? Because I, I am not in the screen right now. I can see it. Yes. Okay, great. And so the small part of the pie is, you know, what you know that you know, like, you know, like for me, I know I'm a female, you know, there's no question. I have, um, you know, a white shirt on, no question. And then there's the other part of the pie where you know that you don't know. So like, I know I'm not a airline pilot, but you are, right? And then the third part, which is a huge piece of the pie, which is where we shift our mindset that you don't know that you don't know. And if we can sit in the DKDK zone in our life, meaning having an open mind and really, uh, um, you know, allowing ourselves to um, <clears throat> not <clears throat> make assumptions based upon our past. Um, Which is a tough, a, that's a tall order. How do you not make assumptions based on your past? I mean, we make, we live in the world of assumptions. That's I'm the hard. I'm going to tell you how I do it. Yeah. Okay. So this weekend I spent three days with the Association of Natural Health training on so many different technologies, mostly frequency, healing, and nutrition, which is my bailiwick. So I was in a happy place. Mm. And one of the doctors got up there and she's telling me, telling us all about food sensitivities. When I test for food sensitivities, I'm testing 450 different foods and she's doing 250. And I'm thinking immediately that's not good enough. Right? Mm -hmm. So I said, Jody, this woman's brilliant. Put yourself in the DKDK zone. So I first went into judgment. I went into assumptions. I um, didn't take it personally. And then I caught myself. So my my suggestion, catch yourself. It's okay to, to do what you do, to go on autopilot for a second. Catch yourself, pivot, put yourself back into the DKDK zone. What am I here supposed to learn? And then you can choose whether or not you want to take it on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take it on, but you can choose to learn it and understand it from their shoes. And she had brilliant, a brilliant way of looking at this. And I don't even remember, it's called the phallic. I think they call it the, the phallic. So each plant has a terpene profile, like multiple terpenes that make up a plant. And, you know, for food, that's a, a different word. And what they're looking at is if that terpene or phallic is in that food, it's also in these other 10 foods. So you actually don't have to test for it. You just don't eat those foods that have that terpene or phallic. I'm like, score, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. You know, for me, it comes back to, I think of one word and that is curiosity. Being able to be in that place of curiosity and, you know, having the openness and just be curious. We lose that somehow. We lose it in our knowing, Why? in our consistency. We lose that curious, open mind. Why? Why do you think we lose that curiosity? Well, I don't I, know. I, I never even asked that question. I don't even have an answer for it, quite frankly. It's, it's interesting to me in our culture, we, we are taught to be curious until our education ends. 
right? We, we like educate ourselves. Okay, we're 22. Now we're done. Go live your life. And learning somehow stops. That's our paradigm. As opposed to this lifelong learning, lifelong curiosity. Some people do it, right? I find some folks who become entrenched and engaged and attached to their cognitive worldview and curiosity withers. And then you find them more and more rigid in their, in their older years, right? They become the cantankerous old SOB. And then you find folks who have that curiosity that seem to age more into grace. And they have this openness and this, this energetic quality, this youthful vitality, even when they're 85 years old. And it's a really interesting pathway that we, we can take. We can make a choice to take one or the other. But I don't know if most folks recognize they, that it is a choice. I think you're right. I think that people don't recognize that they have choices. In the last few years, I think that the world has said, hey, you're limited on your choice because the word mandate has been used way too often. I hate that word. Actually, what do you think about the word mandate in the in the context of work? Mandatory mandate. High vibration, low vibration, should we? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I, I think it's it's brilliant in its use of authority. So we talked about birth order. For me, you know, one of my favorite authors, Irving Yalom, is a Stanford psychologist and talks a lot about uh, the language he would say, the jargon. We recapitulate the family of origin in our work environment. So what happens? We, we show up with this. We show up with an imprint of how to be in the world. I'm the youngest child. I've learned the rules don't apply. I'm not a traditional follower. I'm the guy who's going to go out and carve my own path. Very, very different than my oldest sibling who did everything according to the book, the way you're supposed to cross the T's, dot the I's. I mean, it was like the manifestation of the, the ideal child. You know, they played, she played that role. I played this role. And so now you show up at work and you have people saying there's a mandate. Well, what you're doing is using your authority you know, uh, as a paternal or maternal figure to say this is what you're going to do. So it's going to enact without exception, enact people's uh, authority issues. Some people mm -hmm. will totally say yes. But for me, what it comes down to is engagement. Do you, does it work in getting people to behave the way you need them to behave? And I've seen a lot of people when they say there's a mandate, they say, screw you. They put their foot in the ground and maybe or maybe they do the thing. But then somewhere else, the energy comes out. Right. right. Or they start looking for a new job. And that's oh. where you get that high ter employee turnover. Mm -hmm. So I'll do it today for you so I can get pay get my paycheck on Friday. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. by the way, here's my two week notice. <laughs> I love it in banking. There was a, a mandate that. Folks who worked on the line, tellers, had to uh, sign up individuals for credit cards that came through. Oh, I remember that. Remember what happened? Everybody, I, I don't remember what happened. I, mean, I remember them asking, and what I what I got was that tellers were process oriented, not they were they were C's, not I's, right? High C's, not high I's, meaning they were very conscientious, making sure they count the money, and then they were asking them to be high eyes influencers and they're like i don't know what to do with that well <laughs> right? what they did with it what they did with it was filled out a bunch of applications and gave people credit cards but never talked to them about it 
to the extent of thousands of people in one particular organization. And the whole thing then, I mean, it, it went all the way back to the top of the organization. And the executive team was, was very clear. We never asked them to do this. No, you did. You set them up use, you know, with authority to say, here's what's expected. And they just were loyal and they said, okay, but they didn't actually follow through. They just filled out the, the was credit card. Fargo? Or was that another bank? I believe it was, I believe it was Wells Fargo. Yeah. I used to work at back. their, um, I used to work at Norwest bank, mm -hmm. uh, launched the debit card program for the United States with them. Um, uh, before they became Wells Fargo. And mm -hmm. I, I can see that happening. The whole um, system shook because yeah. of the blindness that happens. Hey, well, just tell them, here's what you're going to do. And I love, I worked in banking quite a while. You know, the, the, the preference and the blind spot of folks in that industry can often be they're myopically focused on the singular right. and they don't see the impact. They don't see the big picture. They don't see the impact. They're logical. They get stuff done. They see the details. And so they had everything lined up. Here's what we're going to ask them to do. And they missed the impact hugely. And the impact shook the organization. So I didn't know you had a banking background. So let, let, let's play for a minute, shall we? Mm -hmm. So we launched the debit card program for the United mm -hmm. States. Chase Bank is doing it for the United States, you know, in, in their in their space, right? And mm -hmm. um, and um, <laughs> sorry. So in banking, we obviously have our own database and we have up-to-date information because you know, <laughs> you're checking account, whatever. And it's not, it's not like any other industry where you're having to make sure that you have up-to-date data, right? Because people are making sure that your, your data is up-to-date. And so we decide that we're going to issue everyone their debit card. Now, to remind you, that debit card has either the MasterCard or Visa symbol on the front. And so people, you know, they're doing them. They're in their world. They are uh, not really paying attention to all the details. And they're like, oh, cool. I've got a new credit card. And so they don't realize it's coming out of their checking account. Now, the agreement that they're making, which they don't even, they're unconsciously making because they haven't read the details and we haven't done a good job at making sure that they know these details, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that if they overdraw the account, Okay, um, they pay that $35 overdraft fee. So, mm -hmm. and let's get really specific. If you're using your debit card for groceries or gas, it automatically gets approved because you can't be out without groceries or gas as if the person has no other way to means to pay for a tank mm -hmm. of gas or a bag of groceries. And so these overdrafts are like over the flipping top. I mean, like over the top and um, Chase Bank had done something that was crazy where that you couldn't go to the teller line <laughs> to get money if you had because you had an ATM card. And mm -hmm. I mean, the anger around that from the, from the community was like, oh, I mean, over the top. Now, the good thing is, is they learned from their lesson. So by, you know, years later, when you got your debit card, they had a little checkbox saying you understand you opt in or opt out of overdraft protection with your debit card, right? Now, I don't even use mm -hmm. the card because <laughs> I don't want anything tied to my checking account, just saying. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. well, this, this is the fun thing. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say this is for me, the fun thing I love working with with leadership teams is helping them learn how to make decisions that consider the impact, the hidden impact before they get into a train wreck. I've seen that in banking so many times. They all come together. There is this clear, pristine logic they utilize to, to deploy their bank card. And what do they find out? Then afterwards, they find out all of these impacts they didn't consider. And that's something that individuals and organizations can train to do, can learn how to do it differently. And to understand that there is all of this part, the, the DKDK, what they don't know that they don't know, is huge and it's impacting and undermining the success of organizations. Yeah. Brilliant example. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, and um, oh, wait, say so Charles. Uh, yeah. So Charles says, I just closed mm -hmm. my bank account with Tory Pines Bank because of excessive uh, fees incurred by overdrafts. Well, and there is actually a law. Well, there was at one time, I'm not in the space where you could, um, there was a maximum amount that you could charge someone for being in a consistent overdraft. But really for me, it was about the lack of transparency around the use of the card. And we were in the DKDK zone. We had no clue. We didn't even think to ask. Um, and I think to your point, Kevin, you can go in and teach them. And if you really don't know, you bring in a focus group, right? To find out what other people are thinking, because that's where the brilliance happens. That's where the change happens. That's where the insight happens, right? Yeah. How would you do that? I mean, don't you think you could do that? Um, even if you didn't want to go outside the, let's say in this case, the bank mm -hmm. and get a focus group. Uh, have you worked at, at corporations to do focus groups inside the corporation to shift mindset? Um, and what did that look like? Well, you know, and even I'm thinking about banking and it attracts a particular type of individual. So they're often very left-brained and Myers-Briggs, I think of them as thinkers. They're sensing, they're thinkers. They're detail-oriented, they get stuff done. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great. So being able to help them understand that what they're missing is that big picture, which is to me about vision and the, the feeler quality, which is about understanding the human impact. So to be able to help them around the table, when I see an executive leadership team that is 100% thinkers, know that they must confer with someone who has a different paradigm. Someone who, or else if they don't, they're going to find the hard way. They're going to find out the hard way, the impact of their decisions. I've seen organizations do everything from, from uh, having work days on holidays that they undervalued the holiday thinking it was marginal and they, they set it up. They said, everybody's going to show up. Doesn't matter that it's this holiday. And it created this huge backlash across the organization. What they do, they double down, say it doesn't matter. That's just the way it's going to be. And then they get people jumping ship and they, they totally obliterate morale and can't understand that it's them. Ah, it's them. So. Gosh, you bring up a great point. Uh, and I want to do a deeper dive on that. So, so number one, 
not recognizing that Sunday's their day off or that they celebrate Christmas or they celebrate Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, right? And mm -hmm. not honoring that. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two. Well, and I'll even go even further. Some really things that would, for me, I mean, I almost feel marginal. Well, I grew up in Michigan where we celebrated Labor Day. Every year it was the, uh, you know, we had Memorial Day and Labor Day, the start and the end of summer. Yeah. When I moved to North Carolina, it blew me away. They didn't celebrate Labor Day. It didn't even make sense because it was such a pivotal part of our cultural rhythm in Michigan. Yes. Down there, it wasn't. And to see how that, I mean, just that those kinds of things, you don't even know what you don't know. You don't know this is important or done some done different somewhere else. Those kinds of, so you make decisions based on what you don't even see or know and sometimes can step right in the middle of it. Yeah, and, and so if you really want to serve your current population, I think it's important to do an assessment of that population at least once a year, quite frankly, um, to see where people are at. Mm -hmm. And this one organization that I'm thinking about in particular, um, yeah, I mean, their employees work um, whatever the normal eight to, eight to five or nine to five. But their their sales team is required to work, let's say, an extra hour or two to make outbound calls on a certain day. Mm -hmm. Well, <coughs> their personal day. Mm -hmm. And when you don't, or, or then they also have to work weekends. Mm -hmm. And so where are the boundaries? Where are the healthy boundaries that someone can, oh, and they have to be on call, <laughs> mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. so, where, so here are my questions. Where are the healthy boundaries? When are we going to understand that unplugging completely from work is the greatest gift, not only that you can give mm -hmm. your employee, but that you can also give back to your own company because they come back refreshed. Go for that. I love it. It's a shifting paradigm, right? The, gone are the days of loyalty to the organization because you can get your you can get your pension, and you know you'll have this reoccurring yeah, revenue when you retire. But that's still the mindset of a lot, you know, a lot of America. Mm -hmm. So you have this, and this thus I think breeds the mindset. Because the new generation doesn't see that or know that. And they realize you have to take care of yourself. The organization is not looking out for you. So they take care of themselves and recognize that this the boundaries you're talking about are essential. It's not about just sacrificing your life for the good of the corporation. That's the old model, the old paradigm. It's so now you, Yeah, exactly. So I love it. Now you see leaders saying, mature, seasoned leaders, old folks, saying, you know, hey, the new generation, they don't want to work. They're lazy. They have all of these ideas about folks who have a different value set. And the reality is what I see is it's just bad leadership. It's leadership that isn't adaptable and adjustable and flexible to understand that corporations aren't the end all and be all anymore in the mind of the, of the individual. I, like I said, my dad worked for GM for 34 years. That's what you did. Well, and I mean, think, think about Kodak. Kodak, mm -hmm. Kodak was like the major film, right? And they 
they learned about digital and uh, that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so... GM went bankrupt. Biggest company in the world. Biggest corporation on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Bankrupt. Why? Because they couldn't adapt. They couldn't. They couldn't flex. They became static in the way they did things and who made the decisions. I love it. When you look at the kind of the paradigm of authority that manifest in, in GM, the ivory tower MBAs made the decision for how things were happening down on the front line. Well, how would they know? And so, and then you put the union in that would create too many boundaries that I remember my dad telling me that, you know, he would go in and do a job. He worked on skilled trades. He would fix a machine, but wasn't allowed to clean up after himself. That was somebody else's job. That's you. And, and why is that? Why is that? <clears throat> that, is that a positive or a negative? Well, it's a double-edged sword, right? They did it to protect people's jobs, <clears throat> but it became it becomes too rigid. And the rigidity in the worldview and the way we attach ourselves to the idea of how an organization should run, what leadership should look like, how teams should function, the the rigidity and i love it because this goes all the way back to aristotle and socrates talking about you know wondering if the world is a static place or a dynamic place and how do you engage depending on your worldview but i can tell you this the more you attach yourself to ideas about how you think things should be the more i see people suffer the more i see organizations falter the more i see teams that don't that don't um, function at the highest level so you made well you've made so many great points but that last one is so spot on when we are committed to how things we think things should be and we don't choose to do an inquiry a self-assessment a corporate assessment where where are we where are we going and instead you choose to be committed to your to your old paradigm or whatever your current paradigm Mm -hmm. that's a recipe for disaster well, and it's a great way of understanding the current political environment. Now it's not <laughs> it's about logic, right? It's about team. It's, a, it's just emotionally based. Who are my team? Or it's resistance against. It's a lot of resistance against and not adjoining with. And, and I look at it more energetically and dynamically than, than content. It's more about the process of how humans relate to a larger whole and how they find their value within a system. Well, and the other thing that I want to bring up, because you've mentioned it a couple times, is you said you're talking about the energy, right? Mm-hmm. And what one of the things that I share about often is the energy behind what we do, the energy behind our words. Um, the energy uh, that we that we give, we could talk about how we give our power away. Like that would be a mm-hmm. thing to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, but when we are telling people how to be, there's an energy ar- around that, and the energy is not good. It's that of slavery. It's that of like Pharaoh being powered over. And where we're going in this world with the consciousness 
is not that route. We're not going that way. That's in the mm -hmm. past. Don't look back because you're not going that way. Move forward, right? Find a new paradigm. Find something that works because um, the energy behind telling someone to do is people will automatically resist. If you get their buying, I think, and I know you can speak to this, I know you will. Um, getting someone's buy-in on a concept and asking them questions that you already know the answer to, you think anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you should have an idea, right, about what that answer is going to be, but um, and be open to a different answer. But to get their buy-in and get their their information immediately engages them into the process and they feel part of the team <coughs> they take ownership yeah i i love it now one thing i'll challenge a little bit sometimes mm -hmm. telling people what to do is absolutely the right thing yes or it's called a, it's called a board it's called a foundation i uh and me for me it's more i think of it in terms of is it part of your style and what you naturally do, or is it a strategy that's going to help get the result you want? Now, a lot of us, if you're type A and you're, you know, mom always said you want it done right, you do it yourself and you go in and you're the oldest child and you, you tell people what to do and you crack the whip and that's your, your autopilot driver, it's going to under, undermine your ability to get the result you want. If, however, you recognize that's part of who you are, but you also know how to ask those questions that elicit engagement, and then you can provide direction when you need, and you can be present with folks, and you can mirror, and you can reflect, and you can ask open-ended solution-focused questions, and you get their buy-in, and you get them to own the solution and the behavior they need to do moving forward, a lot more powerful. Yeah. Uh, so to operate from a position of being strategic and helping them get better as opposed to just playing out here's what I'm going to do and smashing something down their throat. Yeah. And so how, and also how I look at that is I have certain like um, foundational agreements that I make. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we have to have like, like I'll give an example. Like I won't, I won't keep it pie in the sky. Number one, trans be transparent, be open in communication. If you're going to, if we have mm -hmm. a, a meeting at 9 a.m., and you're going to be there at 9, 10 or 9, 05, just being communication. Hey, I'm running five minutes late. I'm running 10 minutes late. That open communication. Don't take out the guesswork for people. Okay. Mm -hmm. These types of foundational agreements that provide psychological safety that you always know that that person's either going to show up or they're going to communicate the, mm -hmm. the new, the change, or they're going to renegotiate the agreement. Okay. And so if we, that's just like one example, but if you can have that, and even that foundation gives leeway for change because you're changing a time, renegotiating agreement. And really it's, if you have those foundations in place, then you have trust and you don't have people having upset. They're not worried whether or not you're going to show up, right? Is she going to show up to the event that we scheduled? right? You don't have that thought running in the background of your head. 
And I love it. Transparency and clear expectations and communicating along the way. It's so essential. What I find is when folks don't know what's going on in the mind of the other, they fill it with projections of fear. Yeah, and story. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they project their own insecurity, their own fear, their own ghosts into that void. Mm-hmm. And so I love what you're saying, just filling that void by simply letting them know, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had five back-to-back appointments yesterday. And thank you, Divine mm-hmm. Timing. Some people mm-hmm. ran late. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and they let me know. So I I feel, so in the, in the gift of letting somebody mm-hmm. know, is that they've got now this 10-minute window and they can like shoot out that email, get that text message done or do whatever that little thing that they really wanted to get done and you are not waiting for that person and preparing, you're using your time and showing up for that thing. You know, like it really, it also it increases productivity, quite frankly, and psychological safety. Thank you, thank you. What is the one thing that you want people to know that's your greatest gift that you bring to uh, either individuals, corporations that you think is your greatest gift to help them rise up? Well, interesting. What do I want them to know about my greatest gift? I would I would flip the table and say what I want them to know about their greatest gift is their greatest gift is is a gold mine. Potential. What I've seen with individuals. your greatest gift. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That it's almost like smart out of my website. You know, like having people see the best version of who they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what my greatest gift is, but I know that I've seen so many people who who move through the world with constraints learn how to do it differently. And I think that that's, that's what my, my role is in life is to help people take steps on their path, to understand what their path is and to take steps. And I've seen the potential of individuals absolutely increase exponentially to go from uh, this negative uh, self-talk that can happen and the self-limiting oh. beliefs and all of these emotions that anchor with those that, that keep them that keep them constrained and watch individuals learn to peel those beliefs back and really rewire their their thinking, rewire their brain at a core level. When people do that, it blows me away. It blows my doors off and it gives me faith in humanity. When I see the potential exercised in individuals, and I see them come, come over that hill and really like own their life and own their relationships and own their organizations and their businesses and and become industry leaders. It's so it's so heartwarming to see that potential in people. And that's, I think, the greatest gift out there is that for folks to recognize and understand that there is so much more potential that they don't see in this moment. So to learn how to but peel then that the out greatest gift is helping other people to see their greatest gift. Mm, mm. That, <laughs> I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah. And then take yeah. action, not just see, but then to move. Into action, right? Because it's like uh, what it, you know, Dr. Matt said. You know, you can read all the books, but unless you take action mm-hmm. with it, it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. And I, I'm now going to bring this up. Um, I know we only have a few minutes left, um, but if you see my logo in the uh, top right, mm-hmm. um, you see there in there. There's three ginkgo leaves, and the top mm-hmm. middle ginkgo leaf is kind of paring out that circle. Mm-hmm. So um, before uh, when COVID started, I redid my logo. Uh, it was one ginkgo, one ginkgo leaf, and that was a, in a circle. And it was, we brought in three, community, 
right? And what I teach about that logo is, um, is that it's about not being constrained because you said it like three times. I'm like, spirit, are you telling me to tell this? And they're like, yes. Um, it's about not being constrained by the belief systems of the past and getting out of your current paradigm, right? Um, and um, the ginkgo itself, the ginkgo tree, the ginkgo leaf is the oldest species of of tree on the planet and actually considered a living fossil, but it's agile enough to have been able to survive hmm. in its an ancient form today. So it's also the epitome of what it means to be agile while being a living fossil. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's adaptive. It's got roots that reach down. It sheds its leaves. It's adaptive and it's fantastic. What a great metaphor. Thank you. So mm -hmm. uh, I was aching to do that. And then I'm like, this person, just wait, 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 wait. And then he said, again, then I go, go. <laughs> you know, I'm driven by, by the divine all the time. Yes. Right? Like, I love it. I love it. Um, so um, if you're looking to get in touch with Kevin um, and you're listening to this on audio, because uh, we do, we're on Podbean and uh, <clears throat> blog talk. We're also... You can follow us on Spotify, um, Audible, Apple, I mean, name it. But reach out to Dr. Kevin Mays at Kevin at MaysLeadership.com. And Mays is M-A-Y-S Leadership.com. You want to give them your phone number, Kevin? Sure. 406-396-6978. And... Um, Text or phone, which is best? Oh, text is great. Text yeah. text is great. Phone is great. Uh, you know, these days we're more of a tech society. Yeah, text. and it's actually easier. It allows you to manage your time unless it's a, yeah. a deeper conversation, right? Yeah, um, schedule a deeper conversation if that's what's needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... Um, well, like I, I will say this, you know, if anybody out there is loves this stuff like I do. I am so excited by conversations around it. And my, this is my, my purpose is to help individuals, teams, and organizations to achieve their potential. It's, I'm on a mission. So I love this stuff to uh, create conscious companies. Uh, fantastic. It's me fired up. So love to oh, be- Oh, and I know it does. And I, and I just want to um, share this. And um, I think people- First of all, people know I only bring people on this show who I think are phenomenal. But what they don't know is I only met you, what, for what, or four days in a row at NLP mm -hmm. training in Illinois. And so I want to let people know this. So, um, you know, let's just put it into perspective. I'm an energy worker who understands leadership and nutrition and blah, 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 blah. And I walk into this room and uh, Dr. Kevin sitting in the front row uh, far left and his energy <laughs> was coming. It filled the room. Hmm. Goodness. Well, that's wonderful feedback. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to go sit by you, <laughs> but I let my husband do it instead. Cause I knew he really wanted to sit by you and talk to you. 
It was great meeting meeting you both. Thank you. I mean, you are really a grounded, healthy soul. So much so that it exudes when you're sitting in a room and people want to know what that, what, what is that all about? (laughs) I want some of that. And so if you're a corporation or an individual looking to shift the energy in your organization to have people think differently, they're one of them. I mean, we've had 10 million reasons already just on this show that we spoke about. But what you may not pick up because you're not in the same room with him is that he naturally attracts people because of who he has chosen to become. He radiates. Bring him to your company. (laughs) That is so gracious and kind of you. Thank you. I'm not that kind. (laughs) (laughs) When people say, when I give a compliment, they go, oh, that's so kind. I'm really not that nice. (laughs) I'm more rooted in truth than I am in kindness, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I have to learn to be more kind. (laughs) (laughs) So if that tells you anything, right? I'm really not rooted in kindness. I'm rooted in truth. So take it in. I, I, I like that distinction. I like that distinction. And I will I will own it, right? I mean, my path has been a long, circuitous route of continually, as we start at the beginning, being on the path of a self-awareness junkie and months and months in meditation and academic study and practice and roaming around the planet and working with companies and working with myself and working as a therapist for, for a decade back in the last millennium. And, you know, many different hats I've worn. Uh, to get here. It's it's good. It's good to try to be a, a good version of myself. <laughs> well, and you're still growing too, which is yeah. awesome. And even as, when we're achieving greatness, the reason we're achieving greatness is because we're still reinventing. Yeah. Right. Here's, here's to the reinvention. Here's to the reinvention. Boom, chakalaka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're ending the show a little early today. Uh, Dr. Kevin's got his next appointment, but you know how to reach out to him. Uh, so Kevin, Dr. Kevin Mays, Kevin at MaysLeadership.com, 406-396-6978. We are beyond grateful that you chose to spend time with us today. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Much appreciated. Wonderful yeah. hour and a half. I really appreciated hanging out with you. Likewise. Likewise. And um I'll connect you on, uh, you know, we'll, we, we'll talk after the show. Uh, um, we'll connect you on some other subject matters so we can uh, move forward. All right. Beautiful. Beautiful. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Interesting. Bye-bye.